welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. This was the conclusion of the Jewish leaders after Jesus raised Lazarus. What's your take? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Pictures of Jesus with this message entitled, I am the Resurrection and the Life, which covers John chapter 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. This morning we are in week four, I believe, I think of, yes, four, week four of a series we're calling Pictures of Jesus, where we're looking at the seven metaphorical I am statements of Jesus. And today, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11, we're coming to the fifth of those I am statements. This statement that Jesus makes in the context of one of his friends, this man whose name you may recognize, named Lazarus, this man named Lazarus' death. This moment where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, if you've heard me preach before, uh, you know that normally my practice is to read the entire text before we dig in, and that is not gonna be what we do today. Uh, The reasons for that are twofold. One, this text is super long, it's 46 verses, so you're not going to want me to just read straight through it. But two, I want us to enter into this story and experience it the way those who are in the story did. And not as those who are so familiar that we jump ahead to the end. So before we dig in, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we are hungry for you to feed us with your word. Lord, we need you. We are desperate for you, even if we don't realize it. And Lord, I pray that you would take this time as we dig into John 11, and Lord, in every way that we would hear, not my voice, not my words, not my ideas, but Lord, we would hear here the words of our Savior Jesus, and they would be words that call us out of death and into life, that it would be your spirit that is at work in this place, and not my designs. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. About a year ago, I read an article that absolutely broke my heart about a 17-year-old kid living in Louisiana named Jerron. On the surface, Jerron is just your average, normal 17-year-old kid. He likes to sleep. He has to have somebody shake him awake in the morning so that he'll actually get up and brush his teeth and eat his cereal and go to school. He sits in classes all day, he studies, and sometimes he looks off into space and he daydreams and his teachers have to call out his name to get his attention. And in every way, Jerron looks like your average, normal 17-year-old kid, except for one glaring thing. Jerron is an inmate in a correctional facility in New Orleans, a 17-year-old kid who was waiting to hear what his sentence will be for a crime he committed when he was 15, a kid who's waiting to discover if he will be in jail for 15 years or 104 years. And every day, the hands that shake him awake They are not the hands of his father or of his mother, they are the hands of a guard. And every day when he goes to school, he goes to a place where every other student is exactly like him. 
kids who have made a mistake and who are now looking at a future that looks incredibly, incredibly bleak. And the teachers at this school, they're faced with this seemingly impossible task. They have to somehow convince these kids, these teenagers, that what they are going to, it is a real school, and what they are doing there, it really matters and that they somehow have real hope of a real future. And then those kids walk out of those classroom doors and they go right back into the cells and when the doors clang shut, those kids are reminded yet again that this is actually their future for the next 15 to 104 years. It's a situation where for both the teachers and the students it feels absolutely hopeless. That hopelessness pervades our world. That hopelessness is not just something that infects people out there, that is a hopelessness that threatens every single one of us, even if we are followers of Christ, because we live in this world where sometimes things look as though they are broken beyond repair. This world where things don't always make sense, this world where we find ourselves sitting at the bedsides of children who just recently escaped the womb, and now they are barely holding on to life. This world where we enter into our marriages with such hope, but now we find ourselves clinging and straining and fighting with everything we can just to hold them together, and it seems as though nothing will work, that disintegration is what is going to happen, and it is inevitable. This world where people that we love We see them in the grip of addictions that they cannot seem to break free of and where we look in our own hearts and we see sins that are so deep and so grave and so pervasive that we think there is absolutely nothing that can kill them and we wonder if they will ever go away and there is this temptation in our hearts to look around at all this brokenness, this world that is saturated in the odor of death and to wonder, is it really possible Is it really possible that there is anyone or anything who could possibly redeem or restore this? And this is what makes John 11 such gloriously good news. Because John 11, John 11 says there is one who can. There is one that you can trust no matter what your circumstances, one you can trust and follow even when things don't make sense because there is one for whom there is no wound so great he cannot heal it. There is no life so lost he cannot save it. And there is no death so deep he cannot raise it. There is the one who is the resurrection and the life, the word that remakes the world. But when you open up John 11, Jesus seems to do everything wrong. Word comes to Jesus that somebody he loves, not some anonymous person, not somebody that just happens to come along him in a crowd, but someone that he knows, someone he loves, someone he is intimate with, that person is sick and they are near death, and Jesus does this weird, strange, inexplicable thing. Jesus waits. And he waits in a way that we do not understand. In verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus, again, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, two days, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus does none of the things that you and I would expect, and then a whole bunch of things that we don't. Over and over again, the text tells us Jesus loved Lazarus. The one whom you love is the one who is ill. It says in verse 5 that he loves not just Lazarus, he loves Mary and he loves Martha, which then brings us to this really uncomfortable reality that most of us want to escape. Jesus loves this man. He loves this family. He knows he is sick and ill and near to death, and Jesus does nothing. He waits. And he waits not just until Lazarus is kind of dead, but really, really, really dead. So much so that in verse 17, it tells us that his body has been in the tomb four days. And the commentators, they do what all of us are doing when we see that truth in this text. You start trying to figure some way to escape, some way to excuse Jesus of what it seems he's obviously doing here in this text. And the best, the best attempt is this one. They say, well, Jesus was 150 kilometers away from Lazarus. Based on the geographical indicators that are in the text, Jesus is a good distance away, which means in a world where there's no Ubers, there's no cars, there's no planes or trains or automobiles, those things are not there, he's a four-day journey from his friend. So when Jesus gets the news, and he doesn't go, the only real difference is this. Lazarus... Lazarus is dead for four days instead of two. You see, it's really not Jesus' fault. He was going to be dead anyways. Do you see the problem with that? Does Jesus have to be geographically present to heal somebody? No. In John 4, there's a father who comes to Jesus and says, my son is ill and near to death. Can you come to my home and heal him? And Jesus says, I'm not coming to your home. 
but go back and your son will be healed. And so the man turns and he goes to find his son and when he gets to his house, his son who was near death, now he is very much alive, healed, just as Jesus said. You can't escape it. Jesus loves, Jesus knows, and Jesus doesn't move for two days. The question is why? Jesus says, I'll tell you why. It's not in spite of my love. It's because of my love. I did this for the sake of my sheep. In verse 5 and 6, it says that he loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And then verse 6 says this really troubling thing. So, because of that love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he loved. The same thing shows up again in verse 14. While we're sitting here and wondering why Jesus would have waited when someone that he loved is sick, the disciples, they have a very different question. They're questioning Jesus' sanity because now Jesus is saying, I'm ready to go, and I want to go to a place where the people just tried to kill me in the last chapter. And as good friends, they're saying, Jesus, this seems like a bad idea. You're driving a car towards a cliff. Stop. Don't go. They don't know Lazarus is dead. They think Lazarus is just sick, and so Jesus looks at his disciples in verse 14, and it says, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, because I love you, I'm glad I was not there. There is something, there is something so essential, something so vital to the life of his sheep, that Jesus, even as a surgeon, sometimes has to cut you in order to heal you. Jesus says, I will inflict a wound that a greater healing would come. There is something my people need, and so I waited. The question again is what? Verse 15, that you may believe. As verse 4 says, why has this illness happened? for the sake of Jesus' glory, for the glory of God that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. There is something, there is something that even Jesus' closest associates, even the disciples, even Lazarus and Mary and Martha, there is something absolutely essential about Jesus that even those who are closest to him, they still haven't grasped or seen yet a glory that is yet to be revealed and Jesus would have them see and the disciples completely miss it. Even though Jesus in verse four says this illness doesn't lead to death and then in verse 11 decides to get a little more explicit. I go to do what? Awaken Lazarus. The disciples, they hear all that talk of life that this will not end in death, that I go to awaken a man who is dead. The disciples hear that and what do they see and what do they hear instead? death. When Jesus says, I am going to where Lazarus is, they hear Jesus saying, I am going to die, and the disciples, they look at each other and they say, we love this man and we cannot leave this man, so we may as well go and die with him. That's what Thomas is saying in verse 16. 
They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, we don't understand. We just know we need to be with you. And so they take off down this road, a four-day journey towards what they think is certain death. And the Jesus who waits in a way that we do not understand, that same Jesus now declares himself to be something that Martha doesn't understand. Martha hears that Jesus has come into the town, that he is nearby, and Martha leaves the house where she and Mary and a group of people who've come from Jerusalem who are mourning, Martha leaves the house and she goes to find Jesus. And verse 20 says this happened. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I love this conversation. Because you hear in this conversation echoes of prayers that so many of us have uttered to God of times we have come into the presence of Jesus and we have begged and we have begged and we have begged and we have said, Lord, save my child. Do not let them perish. Do not let them die. Save them even now. Moments when we've begged, God, save my wife. Do not let cancer take her. God, save my marriage. God, bring my friend to faith. And yet for reasons we don't understand, God, in that moment and at that time, God says no. And we find ourselves saying something that sounds very similar to what Martha says here. Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. And yet notice what Martha says next. Martha's sad. Martha's confused. But Martha still believes. She says in verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha says, Jesus, I don't understand why you weren't here. I don't understand why you didn't heal my brother. I don't understand why you've decided to come now and it seems as though the moment is too late, but I do know this, I trust you and I know that somehow you are going to bring comfort even from this. And Jesus says, more comfort than you know. Your brother, he will rise again. He says what he's already told the disciples in a way that is even more plain. And yet just like the disciples, what does Martha do? She doesn't understand. She hears Jesus who is speaking of a present hope. She hears him speaking of a future one. She hears the equivalent of the first century platitude that you say at funerals where you're going, I'm sure that your husband is in a better place. She hears Jesus 
talking about this thing that all the Pharisees believe, this thing Jesus himself has reaffirmed in John 5, that there would be a day when God would take his people and he would raise them bodily from the grave and he would bring them into his glory, this moment that would happen at the end of all things. And Martha is hearing those words of Jesus, your brother will rise again, and she's going, I know, I know that that one day that'll come. But you can almost hear in the back of her mind, but that doesn't bring me much comfort right now. And then Jesus says something astounding. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, ever die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I'm not talking about a future event, though that's coming. I'm talking about a present reality that is true in me. I am the one who takes the dead and makes them alive. I am the one who comes into this world where death is everywhere, death that is here because of sin, and I am the one who speaks life where there has been death. I'm the one who brings people out of darkness and into light, and I bring them into a life that will never end a life that will never perish, a life that is eternal, a life that only God can offer. That is who I am. Do you believe this? And Martha hears all of that. And she says this thing that sounds so good and in many ways is good, but expresses yet again she still has no clue what Jesus is talking about. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She's saying, Jesus, I trust you. I really do trust you. But as we're gonna see in just a few verses, she really, really doesn't understand what Jesus is saying to her. And so Mary, Martha, armed with Jesus' declaration and her own incomprehension, Martha goes to find her sister Mary who is still sitting in the house, weeping with all the mourners, and Mary hears that Jesus is there, and Mary decides that she's gonna come along for the ride too, and so Mary goes to find Jesus. And all of the crowd, seeing her leave, doing what good friends do when they see somebody who's weeping and mourning, they think she's going to mourn at the grave. And so they follow her. And suddenly Jesus is not just with his disciples, he's not just with Martha, he's not just with Mary, he's with the crowd. And Jesus yet again does something nobody understands. He weeps for reasons the crowd doesn't understand. Mary comes to him and it says this, verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him the same thing that Martha just said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It is that same disappointment that could have been born only from faith. It is the cry of somebody who looks at him and says, I know you're good and I know you're capable, but I don't get this. This is not what I expected. But notice what is missing. Unlike Martha, Mary has no hope of comfort. She's weeping. And the crowd is weeping with her because they look at death and they see something that cannot be defeated. 
And then Jesus does something that is incomprehensible. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Our English translations don't capture what's happening here very well. But what the Greek suggests is that what Jesus is experiencing here, it's not just sadness, it's anger. There is something in the weeping of Mary and the crowd that is so abhorrent to Jesus that it inspires a rage and revulsion in him that is so palpable that nobody can mistake it. And yet at the very same time, there is this deep, profound sorrow. And the crowd, and most likely us with them, did not understand. Two groups break out. One group looks at Jesus and they say, see how he loved him. Here's a man who is broken because his friend is gone and now he is raging and weeping because there's nothing he can do. He is helpless and hopeless just like we are. This is him lifting his fist and shaking it at the heavens and saying, I can do nothing. The other group, they see something a little more sinister. They go, Jesus, you, you healed a man born blind, something that's impossible. How come you didn't save your friend? Did you not love him? Did you not have the power? Two radically different views, but notice what they are united in. Both. Both sides are looking at Jesus, and they see a man who is just as impotent, powerless, hopeless, and helpless in the face of death as they are. And what Jesus would say is if that's what you see, then you have completely missed what is happening right in front of you. These are not the rage and the tears of helplessness and hopelessness. These are rage and tears that are born of love. Like that of a father who sees the thing that has wounded his child and hates it with a holy hatred and yet at the very same time is filled with a deep compassion because he sees the one he loves wounded and he cannot bear the sight of it. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the one who in 1 John 3, we are told, was sent by the Father to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus at this moment, he is staring them in the face. He's staring at the death that is the result of sin, at the decay and the destruction that has wreaked havoc upon the world that he made. He's looking at the darkness and the unbelief that has clouded the minds even of the people closest to him. And Jesus is filled with a holy, righteous fury 
And at the very same time, Jesus is looking as the one who so loves his people, he would lay down his life and he has seen their pain and their anguish, the wound, the wound that that evil has wrought and he is filled with a compassion so deep it brings him to tears. This is what it is to be angry and yet not to sin. This is what it is to weep with those who weep. Jesus, to paraphrase John Calvin, this is Jesus clenching his fist and preparing to go to war. Because the one, the one who waited, the one who declared, and the one who wept, he's about to reveal himself in all of his glory to a people who do not understand And he is going to reveal himself in that glory so that you and I, we would understand and not only understand, we would actually, truly believe. Here's what Jesus does. Then Jesus, verse 38, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, revealing here just how much she has not understood Jesus, The sister of the dead man, Martha, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. She's not stupid. Bodies rot. They stink. She's looking at this going, this doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prays a prayer that he has already been praying to the Father but he now says out loud because he wants the crowd to hear it and to understand, to know, to believe that he is really the one sent by the Father to redeem the world. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me but I said this on account of the people. Again, the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died, the man who seemed beyond hope, the man who had laid in a tomb for four days whose body should have smelled in ways we probably don't even want to imagine or think about, the one that no one thought they would see again, the man who was dead, he came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And I absolutely love this because the crowd responds to a dead man getting up the way I probably would. They see him come out of the tomb and they just stand there. They kind of back up and their mouths go down and Jesus has to, kind of push him along going, he needs your help. Could you you unbind him for me? Could you help him out? Your brother looks a little confined. And then it says this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Why did the disciples so worry about Jesus' approaching death? Why did Martha hear Jesus say as explicitly as possible, your brother will rise again and yet completely misunderstand what Jesus was saying? Why did Mary and the crowd look at Jesus' tears and think they were seeing the tears of someone who was hopeless and helpless in the face of death? 
Why do we so often give in to hopelessness and despair? It's because we look at death and the things in this world that are like it. And we see something that we think cannot be defeated. And then we look at Jesus. And while we see someone who maybe loves us and who might have the power to heal in some ways, a Jesus who even here is as powerless as we are. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at that unbelief and that misunderstanding, shrug his shoulders and say, well, I tried to tell you and walk away. Jesus leans in. And Jesus, not just with his words, but with his every action, Jesus says, I'm not the one defeated by death. I'm the one who conquers it. I'm the word that remakes the world. A few years ago, there was a TV miniseries that attempted to tell the story of the Bible, and some parts of it were fine, and other parts were less so. Uh, one of the parts that really made me angry, and I'm not exaggerating, it just frustrated me to no end, was the way they told this story. Because here's how their version went. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, the crowd is all around him. Mary and Martha are with him. The disciples are at his side. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. And they roll away the stone, and they all look around confused, not knowing what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus walks into the tomb, gets behind the body of Lazarus, who is unbound for reasons that I don't understand. And Mary and Martha come inside the tomb with him. And Jesus looks at Mary and Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Mary and Martha look confused again, as everyone does. And then Jesus bends down and he kisses Lazarus' forehead and his eyes snap open and he sits up and the music swells and you have this beautiful, wonderful, cinematic moment the problem, the reason I wanted to throw my remote control through the television, is that it completely undermined the point of the text. And it undermined the very thing that Jesus took such great care to reveal himself to be. Did Jesus touch Lazarus? Did Jesus go into the tomb? No. What did Jesus do? Jesus stood at a distance and he spoke a word. A word so powerful that as some have put it, if he hadn't said Lazarus' name specifically, all of the dead would have come out. <laughs> What's being revealed? The God who created the heavens and the earth, who spoke them into being by the word of his power, that is the God who is standing in front of Lazarus' tomb in human flesh and the same word that made the world, that is the word that is now remaking it and where there is death, it is bringing life. That's Jesus. He is the word that remakes the world and here is the glory that is even deeper than that. How does Jesus save Lazarus? It's not just the word. 
He saves the life of Lazarus at the cost of his own. Did you notice it? The disciples, they weren't completely wrong. Jesus knew it. He knew that every step that he took towards Jerusalem was a step closer, not just to Lazarus' tomb, but to his own. Because no sooner does Jesus do this miracle than the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders find out about it. And they look at each other and say, he can't go around raising people from the dead because everyone's going to follow him. And if they follow him, we're going to lose everything that is precious to us. There is only one solution. Jesus has to die. And Jesus, the one who in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life in order to take it back up, Jesus knew it. And yet Jesus went anyways. Because Jesus Jesus knew what Mary and Martha and the disciples and the religious leaders didn't. This was not going to be a death like every other death. This was going to be a death that ended in a resurrection greater than even the resurrection of Lazarus because where Lazarus was raised again to physical life, Lazarus died again. The same tomb he came out of, that's a tomb he went back to. Not Jesus. When Jesus got up, it was not just into a little bit of an extra mortal life where he got a few more years added to his lifespan. Jesus got up and he got up into life eternal. Life that never ends. Life that does not perish. Life that is filled to the brim with the glory of God and Jesus' resurrection. It is not a resurrection for him alone, but it is one that sweeps up all who have believed in him, his disciples, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and you and me with it. And it brings us into a life beyond our wildest comprehensions, and it doesn't just sweep us up, it sweeps up everything he has made with it. He is the word who makes all things new. He remakes the world. We may live in a world where we are waiting and we wonder why Jesus is waiting and John 11 says it's not because he doesn't love you. He is doing something greater than you could possibly imagine. We may live in a world where the odor of death saturates everything. A world that is full of stories like Jerron's of dying children and failing marriages and overwhelming sin, a world where we often feel as though we are without hope and what Jesus says to you here is if you have believed in me, then I have raised you to new life and it is life that will never, ever end. There is nothing so broken I cannot heal it and fix it. I'm the word who remakes the world. There is no wound so great I cannot heal it. There is no life so lost I cannot save it. There is no death so deep I cannot raise it. Why? Jesus says, here's why. Because I am the resurrection and the life. Do you, do I, do we believe this? Amen. Heavenly Father, We ask that you would come.
that you would take our hearts, Lord, wherever they are, whether they are dead or sick or tired or weary, and Lord, through the word of your gospel, you would breathe fresh life. That, Lord, you would take us from our tombs even as you have taken Lazarus, and Lord, you would give us the faith not only to see but to believe, to live as those who in a world of hopelessness are full of hope, the hope that only Jesus can bring. And we pray that in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.